0: Welcome to That Mom Life. I'm Sarah Jordan, and this week I am so excited. I think this is a first for me. While I've had teachers on before, I have yet to have one of my own teachers that I've had in my past and someone that I have greatly looked up to for the last, now, 11 years. It is Dr. Candy Walker from the University of Louisville.
1: Oh, Sarah, that's so nice of you to say. I would say the same thing about you. I can't believe it's been 11 years, but I'm so glad we stay connected because you're just a superstar.
0: Uh, this is why I love you. Not because you're calling me a superstar, but I mean, growing up, I was always one of those students that I want to perform. I want to get good grades. I want the teacher to know my name and have a relationship with them. And I came back to U of L to um, take a full time radio job, but also go to school full time. And I remember you were one of the ones that looked at me and you were like, You're working full time. You still need to show up to class. And I was like, I will be here. I will get an A. And you were like, You better. <laughs> And I did. I did. Um, I, I think I got A's in every one of your classes. I, but
1: you absolutely did. And I will say in one of the courses that has often been called a killer course, I think you earned the top grade of the semester in that
0: course. Was that the health communications class? It was. It was. So, OK, first of all, what is your position at the University of Louisville? <laughs>
1: I am a professor in the Department of Communication. I've been there about 20 years now. I've worked my way up. I came here, came to L as an assistant professor, and um, got tenure, and now I'm a full professor. <laughs>
0: So it's, but that's where obviously we met, was in the communications department. That's what my degree is in from there. And you were also my advisor now that I think about it. And when I got there, some of my credits didn't transfer because it wasn't a radio TV program, it was a communications program. And you were the one that was like, you have to just like go to these departments. You have to go to the math department. You have to show them the syllabus, like argue your way through this and you'll get your credits counted. And I did. Um, your health communications class, I remember being in that class. You actually also wrote one of my letters of recommendation that got me into becoming a Kentucky Derby Festival princess and now because of being a princess I'm also on the Kentucky Derby Festival board so like you have been a pivotal person for me in the last 11 years I don't even know if you realize the influence you've had Um, but I remember being a Derby princess my senior year of college working full-time and staying up late in hotel rooms between Derby festivities writing that last paper for your health communications class and I remember it being One of my biggest feelings of accomplishment, because I want to say my paper was like forty pages long, and there's no faking forty pages. And I was like, I did that. So (laughs) I'm so that's it's so funny for you to say something from 11 years ago. You remember me even like being in that class and writing that paper because it meant a lot to me too.
1: Well, I will tell you that I don't. I can't remember a lot of facts about a lot of students. I remember faces and I remember, but you're one of those superstars that it's really easy to remember. I probably could be even quizzed on where you sat in the class. Um, and um, how you engage people. But I, the Kentucky Derby Princess, you were just a superstar and I would sing your praises to anyone that will listen. So anytime I can do that, I would be happy to.
0: Well, thank you for being the type of professor that you are because, again, you are one of those people that I, I wanted to perform for. I wanted to be challenged by. I'm still kicking myself for not yet having my master's because I the first time I wanted to get my master's was after sitting through your health communications class. There was a project where we had to go to the cemetery and um, look for all of the symbols and work our way through that. And that was one of the most strange assignments I ever had, but one of the ones I remember the most for my entire college career. Uh, and then going into those the papers that we had to write, I mean, you engage on a different level. You're not there just to put up a PowerPoint presentation. I mean, you're one of the greats. And so I'm so thankful that you're, you're still so there. Even.
1: <laughs> I could just have you, I could just talk to you every day if we talk like this. This
0: is wonderful. Thank we'll you. just sing each other's praises. It'll be the best. <laughs>
1: oh, thank you. I think this is why everybody likes you. You just say nice <laughs> things.
0: You really do. My mom has always taught me to kill them with kindness. And if you don't say, don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. So I am very much a product of my mother. Um, and a, I try not to reflect too much on the bad and only praise the good in a lot of ways. So let's rewind back a little bit more. So obviously you're a professor now, you've been, you're tenured at UofL. That has been your career path. So let's go back to like the beginning stages. You said you came here to go to UofL. Are you, where did you grow up? So
1: I'll back it up a step. I am originally from Knoxville, Tennessee, a little little suburb of Knoxville called Powell. It was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, My sister still lives there, and I love going back because everybody knows everybody. Everybody looks out for everybody. There's a true sense of community. I think I was really blessed having that as my basis because I just felt very supportive from my early years, but I went to the from there, I went to the University of Tennessee, which is in Knoxville, I lived in the dorm. So I was separated from my community. But still safe enough that I could get home within, you know, 20, 25 minutes, 30 minutes um, very easily. It was at the University of Tennessee. So I'm going to like I'm going to try to give you the support that I had. From growing up, I felt very supported at my family, my my community. When I went to the University of Tennessee, I was originally going to be a dentist. My father was a dentist. I that was I from an early age, I just knew I was going to take over his practice. I um I would work in his dental clinic during the summers. I just, I loved everything about it. I saw it as an art form. He saw it as an art form. Um, I got through a lot of the biologies, the microbiologies, the chemistry, organic chemistries. And I said, oh, no, no, this is not for me. But I was taking communication courses. I took a course called health communication at the time. And I had a professor named Krista Arnold who changed my life. She was doing research on dentists at the time. So I connected her with my dad and his, um, his friends. But I realized that I could still work in health but not be a dentist. And she was the one that really sat down and told me, why don't you explore other things than an area that you may, this biology area that you don't really enjoy so much. So I took more communication classes from her, from others. And she passed me to a professor at the university of Memphis, um, Lynn Webb. And I, So Krista really supported me, and then I went to University of Memphis, and I had a wonderful master's experience, and just in true, I don't know, like feminist taking care of each other, like women taking care of each other. I was passed from my Dr. Arnold at the University of Tennessee to Dr. Webb at the University of Memphis, and they passed me off to Dr. Dixon at the University of Denver, where I ended up getting my PhD in communication. It was all a series of luck and a series of really good women looking out for the next generation of um, researchers and professors and just opening my eyes to what it could be like if I weren't a dentist, but I could still do research on health. So um, I've just been really blessed being supported by a community and also by women who wanted to see me succeed and see all of my cohorts succeed as well. So I'm giving you a very long answer. I did my Ph.D. at the University of Denver and I applied to jobs. I had several job offerings all over the country and ultimately came to the University of Louisville to be a professor because it was close enough home that I could drive home if I needed to drive home, but still far enough away that I could really make a place of my own. So that's a very long answer for you. You
0: I like a very long answer. So I guess my, my first question in response to that would be when you realized you fell in love with the communications path, did you know that that path was pointing to teaching?
1: Not really. I knew that it was pointing to me. My first introduction was um, doing research on Dennis. So my Dr. Arnold um, allowed me to work with her on the project. And so I thought, oh, this is so great. I actually enjoy the people side of medicine and health and dentistry. I don't really like all the biology part of it. I don't really like getting in the mouths of people, but I like what they're saying. Um, So I knew that I liked the research part of it. I really didn't know that I would be a teacher of it until I was in my master's program. And they... The assistantship that I was on, I taught classes in order for them to pay for my school. So that was the first introduction I'd had to, oh, to do research. I also teach, and that's and it was, so it was this really cool um, bridge of being alone in front of a computer and also with other people and talking about the ideas that research is talking about. The classroom brings the research alive because I can sit and read journal articles all day long, but to have a class of students where I can talk about the research and the implications of it in a real world setting. I think that's, that's why I think I have the most perfect job in the world is because I get to, I get to be a lot of different things as a professor. I get to be someone who sits alone in front of a computer. I get to work on research teams, trying to, um, create the next set of research knowledge, and I also get to talk about it with some really great students at the University of Louisville who, whether they're pretending or not, seem interested in the research that we're talking about.
0: So was your dad disappointed at all that you didn't want to go down that family path?
1: No, no. I mean, I think that he had moments of like, well, you're really not going to be a dentist, but um once he saw that I I think it was, you only want the best for your children. You know, you're a mom. You see, like, life lessons that you're like, oh, I wish you'd go this other way or I wish you'd choose this, but they choose something else. But you're ultimately like, it makes them happy. That's great. I think that's where my parents were. Um, they were always just wanting me to be whoever I wanted to be. Dentistry was an easier path because – You know, it was a path that they knew that it was a path that they I could just walk into. So they were a little uncertain what it meant to be a professor. Um, Up until both my parents, I passed away now, but up until they both died, I don't really think they knew what I did as a professor. I don't think they understood. Oh, she's a teacher. Oh, she published something. But I don't really think they understand what being a professor was. They just knew that I was happy and that's all that mattered.
0: You know, I have a couple of friends, one that was going to school to be a chiropractor like his dad. And then I met him and was like, you're going to school to be a chiropractor? You'd be perfect in radio. And then got him eventually he switched his degree and now he's in media and he was on the path to like follow his dad. And then actually uh, the morning show host on the station I work for, his dad is a dentist and he was going to school to also be a dentist and realized very quickly, this is not the path for me is <laughs> also in radio. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's amazing sometimes the pull when you see parents in front of you like, Oh, I want to be a part of this, but then you're still taking a lot of what you learned obviously from your dad and you started there and there is a love there just turn it into something else.
1: Yeah. So I still do research on health and I still um, am interested in the dental field, but it just is the people side of it.
0: So when you were in college, you you talk about your dad. Do you have any siblings?
1: I do. I have an older sister um, who has always been more like another mother to me rather than until – you know, I think until we got a little bit older, where age doesn't seem as important or doesn't seem like age differences don't seem as great. But growing up, it was just this older sibling that I had that got to tell me what to do. Um, now she's my best friend, and she um, has a beautiful, successful daughter in marriage. And um, I'm just so glad that we have each other because we have a very small family. Um, as I said, my, but my parents have passed and they both came from small families. So when we talk about family gatherings, really what I'm talking about is, am I going to get together with my sister or not? Um, and it is a big deal because she lives four hours away. So we really like when we can get together. Um, we call ourselves pack animals because when we're, we're the happiest, when all of our families are all together in the same room and doing something collective, that's when we're all the happiest.
0: Well, I totally agree with that. Um, I don't know if I've told you this before. You may have known this. But so about three years ago-ish, my dad was really sick in the hospital. And my mom looked at me and she goes, if we ever win the lottery, I want to buy land and we're both going to build houses. And my husband and I were talking about it. And he was like, why does that have to be a lottery dream? So we started looking into it. And keep in mind, my husband's an only child. His mom is an only child. So you, you the small family style. I mean, when we used were getting the family together, it was four generations and we could all fit around one table. Um, so my husband came up with the idea of buying land and building one home, essentially two houses put together in one. So we've been living here two years now. So it's a multi-generational home. And my parents are here, my grandfather is here. So there's actually four generations in the house. And it's like two houses in one. So we are we're a packed family in the sense that
1: I love it though. I love that so much.
0: Yeah, so we function as one giant family unit, and that's why I told you my mom was taking the baby, because while I'm working from home, she retired last year, and she was going to stay home and help take care of the baby. Now my parents are also helping with virtual learning as we're here, but we're all here to like protect each other, like you said, as a pack.
1: I think that that really speaks to like the village um, metaphor that a lot of people talk about it. it takes a village to raise a child it takes a yeah. it takes it takes a lot of people to have a successful life and success meaning a lot of different things um feeling loved feeling supported feeling cared for feeling like you have your basic needs met so um i think we all have been so trained to be individualistic that we have to go and be Something on our own that it's nice when we start realizing, no, we really want to be with family or we want to be with our friends who are family and and create those villages where you have more people helping out.
0: Well, and I think you're totally right. I think we were, it was was such a, it's such something that was embedded in us to uh, stand on your own two, two feet. You have to be independent. Like, um, are you asking for help? And then I know me, I have a problem saying yes to when people offer me help. And you're right. I think there's a difference in like, being supported and having your needs met and feeling loved and having a village versus somebody like doing something for you that you should be doing yourself. I mean, those are, I feel like are very different things that often get very confused. But in all reality, you want the help, you want the support, just say yes.
1: Yes, I think that's really hard for, um, I'm I'm sure it is for men, but I just talk to more women about it, that it's really hard to say yes to get getting help but we have a hard time saying no when people are you know asked yeah. to do the craziest things when we really just want to help our friends and family. Um, but I agree. I Isn't it interesting how we all feel like there's, we don't want to burden people. Everybody has a full life. We don't want to ask too much of them. But like in your living situation, just having someone that you can pass your child off to that really wants to be there and be the person that the child's passed to. I mean, like what a feeling for everybody to feel needed and to also be able to share more love with other people.
0: I feel like you're right about the fact that it comes from women. I feel like that mom guilt, the burden you referenced, we feel like we're just supposed to be able to do it all. Mm -hmm. and It's impossible, especially in 2020 Mm -hmm. um, when you're trying to be not just a working mom, but a mom and work and take and do school. I mean, it's a whole lot. There's so much to take on there, but I mean, I told one of my friends the other day, they just had a baby. And I said, when someone else ask, or when someone offers your help, say yes. And they are like, well, of course. And I said, no, it seems obvious. They would not be offering unless they meant it. Learn to say yes. And it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. And and just likely like she's doing much better now when she went back to the doctor and stuff like that. But I mean, I have a problem doing that. And I'll be like, Oh, I'll just do it myself. Oh, I'll just do it myself. But I also remember at one point, I think I started the year before all this stuff happened. It was the year of me trying to learn the word. No. Yeah, because I have a tendency just to overextend because I want to help people, even though down, it's like, I know I don't have time for this and I can't manage this and it's going to make me crazy, but I have a really hard time saying no to people.
1: Of course you do, because you have such a generous and wonderful heart and you're like, oh, and this will just make them happy and seeing yeah. people happy makes you happy. But at some point you have to fill your bucket. And, you know, that phrase of like you've got to put your air mask on first um, if you're flying. It's really true. Like we can say yes all we want, but eventually we're going to have to put our air mask on and make sure that we're OK before we can extend out any further.
0: I totally agree with you. Um, when going back to your research, what have been? I know you've done, obviously over the years you've done a lot. What have been some of the more pivotal research projects that you feel like have been the things that obviously you've been published for, but that you feel like are landmarks along your career path?
1: Um, I am sure that. Um uh, an academic should have a set answer to this question, Sarah. But I am sure that there are academics, most academics uh, would say, oh, it's these five pieces that were seminal to my discipline. These were the the pieces that really changed how the research conversation about that topic. And uh, I have pieces that I probably can like, target and say we changed the how we talk about Um, tobacco because of this piece or this research. But really when I think about the change of my research or, um, its importance or stature in my mind, it comes down to my research teams. I was on a research team as an undergrad with um, the professor I was talking to about, and she introduced me to the world of teams. Like, here's what it means to be on a team, and here's how it works. So when I went to Memphis, I worked on Dr. Webb's research teams. And it was – that's – like, I can pinpoint – a research team that I worked on in Denver. And then I've had three or four research teams here at university of Louisville that have really changed who I am as a person. I've learned about myself, I learned about others um, and realizing how awesome people are. If you just allow them to be awesome. (laughs) So I think I, I grew up in like, I need to do it all, but on a team, if you have the right team and the right people around you, everybody wanting a collective goal and everybody's looking out, like pulling the strengths from everybody. And that was a different model for me, like on a team's base, like you may not be good at this, but I'm good at that. And let's pull from a strength space instead of a weakness space. I think I'd always watch teams as a competition. Like I just have to perform better than everybody else on my team. And that was not going to serve me well as a person or a human um, or an academic. So when I realized that we could do a Teams based on strengths of, hey, let me fill in that hole because that's what I can do really well. Or I'm going to tag you for this part of the project because you do, you number crunch really well, you present really well, or you um, talk to, to the community really well, or you, you have the funding gear of the grant agencies. Like Everybody has a strength if we allow them to, to be a strength and to play to those strengths just makes you feel better at the end of the day. So instead of my research pieces, I'd probably say I could pinpoint some research teams that really shaped who I am.
0: Well, because I feel like that's a lot more of obviously you spent a lot more time with those people. You it was a long period of time. It was a feeling of being a part of a collective group. So really, what you're saying is it's not so much of what the end product was, but the journey to actually get there.
1: Absolutely. Oh, you that was so articulate. You really, should have <laughs> Sarah, that was very articulate.
0: <laughs> you know, I. I um, I listened to another podcast and there are obviously celebrities who do TV shows and movies and all this stuff. And they often talk about that, that it's not even necessarily about the project that they're working on, but who they are working with. And that is really what shapes the entire experience itself. And because it all comes back to relationships anyway.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, that's the basis of why we're here is to, to share love, to have relationships. And if we can do that in our work life, even better, I think it, if we have those relationships and we are pulling on people's strengths and we feel good about the work we're doing, the product is going to just be good just because of the nature of how you're talking about it and who you're, what you want. You want the product to be good or the project to be good just because you want everybody to succeed. So if we put relationships first, I think everything else falls in line.
0: This is just me not knowing as a professor. Are you required to do a certain amount of research? Um,
1: There's an easy answer to that, which would be the saying that says publish or perish. Um, So the easy answer is yes, I have to publish. I have to do research. We are a research one institution at University of Louisville. So that means that we are supposed to create the new knowledge. We're supposed to create that research. Um, And as a research one institution, we have different criteria that we have to meet. So how that translates for somebody that's a faculty member in communication is in order to get tenure you have to show that you can, you can engage in the research conversation, that you have something to contribute to the research conversation, that you are adding on to the discussion. So once you are tenured, then you are associate professor. And in order to become a full professor, you have to continue that path and also have an international name for yourself. You have to be known for a piece of your work life in a way that. You have established who you are and you have a commitment to continue to be a professor. You have a commitment to continue to do research and to expand knowledge in a certain area. So for me, that means that as I worked my way up as a full professor, that I have now a commitment that I have to continue to do research and I used to think, well, once I got tenure, everything will just slow down and I won't have to work and push as hard. But now I push and work harder because it's up to the full professors like, to get the grants, to get the money, to help support our junior faculty and bring them along on the journey of um, getting associate and becoming full. It's it's um it's. It's just a process. It's just a, um, now that I'm here, I have to work harder so that I can also help the people that are coming in behind me.
0: I remember when I was at UofL, I want to say you went on maybe a research trip with Dr. Gray. Was she on part of your research team? Did
1: that happen? Yeah. Oh, yes. And when she moved to Boston, I was so sad. Yeah, she, was Dr. Greg, um, she had the office across from me at the time. And so we would try to find different ways to do research and often with Dr. Joy Hart as well. And that was one of the teams I was referring to in my head earlier um, when I was mentioning different teams. Dr. Greg enjoy like well uh, the three of us we were called the three musketeers for a while because we would just have so much fun doing research we would forget we were doing research um and so we would present at conferences and that's it's kind of typical um for people as you do the research you present it at a conference and then you um, hope to get it published in a journal so um the three of us would go to different conferences and present our research and one of the takeaways when the three of us were together is that everybody in the room was going to have a good time because we had such a good time with our research. I mean, it was important research. It was hard research. It was, um, it pushed the conversation, but we could, we enjoyed ourselves so much that it was, we were able to bring other people into the fold of the topic.
0: That's what I remember. I, cause I had both of you guys at once and that's when I realized very quickly that, Oh, these are the people that I want to be friends with for beyond that, because there's been four college professor, three college professors that I've had. Um, and I went to three different schools, actually, but still graduated in four years. And you are you're the one from U L, and then two of the ones from the school I went to in Evansville that are people that like those shifting moments where you're like, I want to be like them, those people, which is why. I just think teachers in general are such superheroes because they play such a large role. Even if you come from the best home with the most supportive parents and everything else, there's something a teacher can do when they're putting that knowledge in there and making all the little pieces fit together as you're discovering who you are and who you want to be on your path. And so that's it's a true gift given to Teachers in general to be able to do that and have the opportunity to do that for other other teenagers, college students, children, kindergartners. It doesn't matter. They're shaping lives. Oh,
1: I agree. I I have two children in my um, I have a 12 year old and a 15 year old. And I see the communication that many of the teachers have with them. And I'm just so thankful that they get to hear. A different voice than just a parent voice telling them to work hard, to push further, to um, don't just do what's expected, but do a little bit more. I mean, it's really nice that teachers, I mean, they are superhumans. Let's just put that out yeah. superhuman. And the level of care that they carry around with them for their students is, is so impressive.
0: So back to your personal life a little bit, because I know we've been focusing professionally. So you moved around between Tennessee and Colorado in Louisville. And you just mentioned you you have two daughters, a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. So we're winding back to um, when did you meet your husband?
1: I knew my husband as we grew up together um, somewhat. Um, His best friend was... Marshall Break Bill. I'm going to mention him. Marshall Break Bill. My dad's best friend was Dr. Paul Break Bill. So we did, I, I told you we were a small family. So we joined the Break Bills for holidays, Thanksgiving in particular. And Sam, who my, hus- my husband's name is Sam, um, was always at the Bill's house. So I knew Sam from going over to the Breakbills. Um We lost touch. We ended up having a college class together. Um, and I remember I was like, oh, there's Sam. And then we lost touch again. And it wasn't until I was living in Kentucky. I had gone home and we I had met up with Marshall and his girlfriend, his wife now, but his girlfriend at the time to watch a Tennessee football game. And he invited Sam to join us afterwards. And Sam and I connected there and we've been together ever since.
0: So you guys, you've guys been together. I, I love that you've known each other for that long, though.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, but I think there's something I don't know I that my Something deep about it, because i 've known him my whole life, and there's a good chance I could have married somebody that neither one of my parents ever had met um in like since they 've passed, and I know that I got together with Sam after my dad had um, um died, so it's really nice knowing that my dad knew who i married I, I know that sounds crazy, but there's like some I don't know, connectivity that I really like that um, Sam's just seemed to be part of my family even before he was part of my family.
0: Well, he had roots there, so you knew your dad maybe approved of him even. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's kind of nice, or I was going to give him his approval, like, oh, yeah, my dad would approve you. (laughs) No, but he would. Um, Sam is a realtor here in Louisville. He is um, a wonderful dad and a great husband, and um, we've made a life here. I mean, he's from a smaller um, cloud in Tennessee, so a smaller suburb uh, around Knoxville and um we've we figured out a way to create um a village and a life here in Louisville and I don't think that we'd ever move away from Louisville now we love it so much does he come from a big family kind of but not really yes and no um he he had um he has two living brothers and um his mom is still alive and She had a she has a brother uh, that's living and he has a humongous family. So Sam's family extended family is a lot larger. So when we have family outings now, um, his mom still hosts and we all just congregate at her house and my sister and her family just come along with us. So we've all merged our families really beautifully so that no one has to feel or I don't have to feel like I have to have two holidays one with my sister and one with his family we're all just all together having a holiday we're just one big family now
0: i love that that's essentially what we did i was telling you about my husband's small family and so with him being an only child his mom's being an only child he has some some more family on his dad's side but on his mom's side when his grandparents passed away That means that entire family of the immediate family was just him and his mom and his stepdad. Mm -hmm. So now, a lot of times when we do family gatherings, I come from the massive family. They're just part of it. It's like, just come on over. Let's not choose. I mean, I remember the days when my husband and I used to go to three different Thanksgivings in one day. And now it's just like, let's just get the entire family together. Let's just, it doesn't even matter anymore. Just put them in there.
1: (laughs) Aren't you glad you built the house that you built so that that can happen?
0: Oh, you have no idea. I mean, when baby three was a surprise for us and I remember the night I found out I was pregnant, I was like crying and just in shock because we were so surprised. And my husband's like, think about it. Your dad's getting ready to retire. We just built this house. We have room. Like it's going to be okay. And even before the pandemic hit, like it's just going to be okay. Um, and now with the pandemic, my dad is more high risk and my grandfather's here. So obviously he's 88, he's high risk. So it's really a job of the entire family, a burden we all take on to protect each other. Just because, I mean, every day there are nine people in this house and we have to protect each other at all times, obviously the adults. So it's to protect the kids. And I mean, my my youngest is only one. So, I mean, it's just really... It's been really nice to collectively function. And I know some people, I'm like, clearly you have to get along with your, pa- your in-laws, your family, whomever. Otherwise, this is not a living situation that would work for you. But I mean, my mom and I worked on the garden all year long and did all the canning together and made all the homemade salsas and went out there every night. I mean, she gets to help the kids with their little craft projects. And my dad built stuff in the wood shop in the garage. I mean, my kids get to be a part of their grandparents' life every single day. And I only have one living grandparent left. So I mean, like every memory they get to make with them is beneficial.
1: Absolutely. I'm just thinking about how lucky your kids are to have so many people on a daily basis love them. Yes. And that is going to help them in so many ways that we can't even measure right now that just that they feel grounded. They feel loved. They have different stimuli at any given point with different people. Um, What a that's just beautiful.
0: I, it was one of those like taking a mother-in-law suite that they may build in some houses, but literally making it an entire house. And so we do shut like doors shut. We have our own time. We have our own space, but I can definitely say now in two years, I've not gotten sick of the living situation that we have. There's enough space and separation. So it's just, it's strange. I never necessarily thought that we would live this way, but it makes total sense growing up. My dad always had an open door policy. He's like, if I can ever provide for a family in need, the door is always open. So there were many times in my life growing up that an aunt and uncle would be living with us and aunt and uncle and their kids, their kids. Um, grandparents would be there for long extended stays. We helped take care of long term other family members. So, I mean, we've always just lived in this house of taking care of other family members. So it's it's a crazy little lifestyle, but honestly, it's more and more I realize it's one of my identifying traits as to why I am the way that I am.
1: (laughs) It is. I mean, I think that just speaks to your generosity. Absolutely.
0: I mean, so... As you go through your career now, okay, wait. I, I went back to personal life. I'm going to stay away from career. I'm just so fascinated by what you do because there's a part of me that knows if I ever got out of my career, I would be wanting to head towards the educational path. You to, but
1: if you ever get out of the field that you're in, I want you to come talk to me so we can get you as a professor.
0: Yes. Yes, please. Um, so with your daughters, now going back to becoming a mom, when you and Sam first got married, was it were you guys traveling a lot and just focusing on you, or did you guys end up having kids pretty soon after?
1: We had kids pretty soon. Um, we were already in our mid-30s, and so we knew we wanted to have children, and so we didn't know if it would take a long time, if it wouldn't, so um, we we knew we wanted to have children pretty quickly. I was working um, a lot and traveling a lot. So it wasn't, let's see, my daughter's 12 now. Um, I was doing international trips. Oh, with research and with students, taking students to different countries. And it wasn't until my oldest said something to me like, Oh, you're going to be gone for my recital again. Aren't you? I was like, oh, I can't stomach this. And I was being FaceTimed in. I remember waking up, I was in Africa and I was waking up in the middle of the night so that I could be FaceTimed into recitals or a school performance or the little things that you don't think that matter, but really do matter. Those are the big things. Those are the big moments. So um, it was after, it was one year that I, I think I did like, I don't know, nine, 10, 11 international trips on top of, some other like travel for research. And I was like, I, I can't do this anymore and be a mom. Uh, and that was one of those moments where I had to choose being a mom over a di- a career path that would have taken me in a different way. Um, I think about those moments a lot because I think women in particular are, have to make choices that benefit them and their children and their families in ways that I don't think men have to, or haven't been forced to. Um, So I, I think it's really hard to be a mom and to work. I am not going to lie. I remember when I was where you were like having the little ones and like dropping them off at daycare or dropping them off. um, What I would bring them to work with me when I had because we didn't have family in town. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to bring them to work. I remember taking my kids to class with me or to research meetings with me. It's like this is just who I am. And it's a juxtaposition between being supported at work and saying, yeah, you know, you're a mom and we support you, too. But we need some boundaries because we can't have your kids at work with you. So it's it's a juxtaposition of like, how do I become a mom and a, a professional at the same time?
0: It's really hard. And I think it stems from the fact that we carry the babies and we birth the babies and whether or not you breastfeed the babies. I mean, I don't know why, but there just seems like there is a difference there. And that's not necessarily, I obviously know guys that, that break the mold and they're the ones that stay home with the kids and their wives went back to work. And there are those people that are in different roles. Yes. But I feel like what you're saying is totally true. It is very hard to be seen as this, equally competitive professional in your career But at the same time, being present and being home and being the best mom, I was just talking with someone on my podcast last week and she started up her own business and she was very open about the fact that her and her husband, when her business got going really well, her husband and her had a, had a rocky part in their marriage because he saw her as someone who was going to be a stay at home mom. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, I'm finding my career. And they really had to, she even openly said, go to therapy so he could change his mindset on who she was. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's really hard because you do see, I don't know, you feel like this, I should just be a stay-at-home mom, I should just do that, even though I can guarantee you probably never thought I'm just going to be a stay-at-home mom. I never thought that I'm just going to be a stay-at-home mom. I knew that being a professional was so important to me, too. So I just wanted to do it all. I wanted to do all
1: the things. I, all the things. I didn't want to be just a stay at home mom or I wanted to be all a stay at home mom. I didn't want to just be a professor, but I wanted to be a complete professor. So I wanted to do it all. Um, I read a quote one time that said, I spend my time at home pretending that I'm not a professional and I spend my time being at my professional at work pretending that I'm not a mom. So I spent a lot of energy When I'm at work, being at work, and when I'm at home, being at home, and trying to pretend the other worlds don't exist, and I think that's where a lot of women get exhausted is the whole burden of I want both of these things fully. I don't want to do one or the other in a half-hearted way. I want to jump in both feet and do it the best I can. And there's in finding ways to do that that feel good to your soul is hard
0: it is really hard and you're, you're right I, people used to ask me how do you do it all and I'd be like when I go to work I'm at work and when I go home I'm a mom and like if it's derby season well, I'm working more and if my kid's sick I'm at home more and then more and more this year I'm going that's not true when I'm at work I'm not, not a mom what? and I'm not I'm not not a professional and by me saying I just have to balance it implies imbalance and it's like these just things coexist although this year they coexist in such a different more difficult way that there are no boundaries but I know that I just keep telling people I'm only 100% Mm -hmm. I only can be divided so many ways but I will never achieve more than 100%. And it's really hard to figure out what is what. I mean, I'm literally podcasting with you right now and I can hear my stubborn little one year old screaming in her crib and there's a part of me that feels so guilty right now, but at the same time i like, she has to take it up and I need to record my podcast. <laughs>
1: But you're right, because we think we can compartmentalize so well that oh, I'm, at work. I'm at work. But no, am I at my work, I'm still getting phone calls of do I, who's going to pick up the – like when we weren't in a pandemic, who's going to pick up the child when they're sick and who is checking emails and who's checking their, their online systems to make sure all their work is turned in and, like, who's making the doctor's appointments because I'm doing that when I'm at work. And when I'm at home, I'm still checking email and answering questions about – Right. for research or something so it's just figuring out a way to create a path that makes sense but doesn't overwhelm you
0: do you find that your kids have ever been jealous of the kid, your, your kids at school
1: they were jealous of my travel. They were not jealous of the students, but they were jealous of the time, especially when I was traveling so much. They were jealous that mommy got to go on trips and mommy was gone. So she, they were jealous of that piece of it. But they also really liked when mommy went away because mommy brought presents home. So they still talk about it. <laughs> <that.
0: laughs> So, do they, do you travel nearly as much anymore? Well, okay, outside of twenty twenty
1: pandemic, no, no. Um, I was working with the international service learning program at U of L, and we were setting up the international trips at the time that I was working with it. So, um, at that time, we moved from one two sites. And then we moved into five or six different international sites. So we were doing lots of site visits at the time. So I was traveling a lot. That was that part of my job. And then my other part of the job is going to conferences and presenting my research. So I was going a lot. Now I only do conferences to present my research that it takes down. And a lot of times I get to take my family with me to those or I choose to take my family with me. Um, like there's a conference that I go to every April and my husband always has to work, but it ends up being that the girls and I, um, we room with joy heart cause it's their godmother. Um, the four of us end up, we do the conference and then we go explore wherever we're going to go, whether it's Biltmore or a beach or somewhere. Um, so we, we take, we take advantage of the conferences now, now that I am in a place where I feel comfortable doing that. <laughs>
0: So your daughters now, just because of like Facebook, and I'm looking at that. You're still, you're. They're both dancers, right?
1: They are. um, My oldest is at Y-Pass in the guitar program and she loves playing the guitar. That is probably her her focus. She loves her dance, but she loves her. it's because she loves the, the dance team. And my youngest is a performer at heart. I'm sure you have a child like this too, that they just oh. came out of the womb performing. And that is my youngest. She just came out of the womb performing. So she will sing, she will dance, she'll play the guitar. As long as she has somebody watching her, she is happy.
0: I do feel like my daughters are going to be like that. Growing up, I was surprisingly shy. But at the same time, I was also the kid like practicing for Academy Award speeches in the mirror or setting up my tables in the shape of a classroom and teaching them things. And then I got into theater in high school and then theater led to radio and TV and blah, 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 blah. But my one daughter is five and she will put on multiple princess dresses she will make you announce her into the room she will come into the room doing her own song and dance and she will make people clap and then she will change and make you announce her as the next person i mean she is going to be that girl. I mean, she is a uh, Spitfire. My husband's like, she's your daughter. And I'm like, yeah, but surprisingly, at her age, I was still shy. I would do that by myself, not to like the house.
1: Oh, but she has her, I mean, she has all of her adoring fans that live with her. So why would yes. love I love it that, I mean, I think that that's great. As, we can give children the opportunity to walk into a room and command the room like that at a young age and to figure out the interpersonal aspects of getting what their needs met.
0: I think that that's fabulous. What a great gift. Oh yeah. She's, she's, she knows how to demand the attention. I'm pretty sure my one year old knows how to do that too. Already she'll do something and make sure she'll look at every single person at the table to make sure that they're all looking at her when she does something that she thinks is funny. So it's, it is quite the whirlwind, and I'm so glad that I finally got to track you down. I feel like I've been talking to you for five minutes, and somehow it's been 45 minutes. I mean, you and I go back and forth occasionally, but like, I need to like have long conversations with you. What has it been like for you being a teacher slash mother in 2020, though?
1: Um, it's hard. It's exhausting. I, I don't know if you could ask that to many... People that wouldn't say that it's overwhelming at times. And at the same time, there's so much joy. Like at this very moment, my office is surrounded by windows and I can see through the windows and I see that my youngest is twirling in the kitchen and my oldest has her guitar in her hands. And so like there's moments of like I wouldn't be able to have these these sneak these moments of just pure joy of them interacting with each other if we were all in our real worlds of school and work. Um, so I I don't want to miss an opportunity of enjoying all of us being together in the house all the time, but there are, there is absolutely moments that we've all needed a break from each other.
0: Yes. I mean, there are those points. I know that by the, you're probably like this too. By the end of the day, by the time that I get up before my kids to start working before they wake up so that I'm uninterrupted and I can drink my coffee in peace and work. And then I'm juggling school and work for the remainder of the day. Then they stop school and then I feel guilty for still working. Mm-hmm. And then you get through dinner and then you're trying to get through bath time. It's not so much you anymore, but trying to get through all that. That sometime by the time I get down and laying in bed, that's truly the first time I've relaxed since about six thirty in the morning. And this is about nine o'clock at night every night. And then it's like there's this sixty to ninety minute window where it's like just me and my husband. It's the first time I've relaxed. It's the first time I've sat on a couch or a bed and relaxed. I mean sometimes I just miss driving in my car and driving to work. <laughs> and being alone or listening to a podcast without being in our uninterrupted or focusing on one task at a time. It is just I mean, you're right. There's not a single person we are all on the same page with the 2020 is awful. 2020 is difficult. 2020 has been a challenge. Like everyone can agree with these things. No one wants the positions we're in. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just because it's mentally, you're trying to take on so many things at once. So now you are right. I mean, my daughter is now 13 months old today and I have only not put her to bed once in her life. Um, I have been able to luckily exclusively breastfeed my kids and she hasn't had to take a bottle. I don't have to use a breast pump, which is great. Um, I'm here for every nap time, every good night. I see my kids in school and I get to hear their teachers. And it's so cool to see that different side that we would never have seen before. Mm-hmm. And so I get to see my kids every single day. And I got to see my daughter's first steps for the first time. I missed my other kids because they did it when they were at their babysitter's house. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you're so 100% correct in the sense that there are silver linings and moments that it, you're not missing that you would have been missing. Had you been at work or had you been had the kids been at school or whatever it is. So, I mean, I don't know. It's, I I said to someone yesterday, when I look back at the fact when we first shut down, everyone thought, Oh, this will be like two weeks. Yeah. and no, No one thought that we would still be in December dealing with this. And I think about how much the entire society has learned in nine months about how to exist differently in the same space, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of research ahead of you. You could do if you wanted, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Or you can come back to school and you can do it.
0: I will do it because look, I I have a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts on what has happened to people's social skills during this time, communication levels, ways that communication has increased, is technology and virtually speaking satisfy the same thing that you need if you were physically in person with these people. Um, there's a lot of thoughts I have on all of this. Absolutely,
1: absolutely.
0: Long-term effects um, <laughs> of social isolation. Um, Although I still live in
1: a crazy house, so I'm I'm still dealing with people all day. Absolutely. Oh my goodness, yes. I was just thinking about, um, because my daughter, like people that are like, oh, we're self-isolating, and then you hear that they all got together. And you're like, you can't say you're self-isolating and still get together with people. Or um, when we see people that have gotten together, and we're like, wait, we're supposed to not be getting together with people. So there's this point of like, when... Like just uh, knowing what to do and when to do it and knowing when you do need to get with people because your mental health in a safe way, figure out a way to get with people so that you stay in a safe safe mental zone. I mean, there's a lot that people are juggling on an, a minute to minute, day by day basis that it's not the big things of like, how are you going to do work and who's going to feed the kids yeah. and sure. who's bathing them, putting the bed. Like it's the little, you're overwhelmed with all the micro decisions that you're making every day. Yeah.
0: Well, and you have to second guess all of those micro decisions because obviously moving in a big house, I always want people to come over. We are always hosting events. Well, now when this first we got out of lockdown. I think we had this, that like two month period of um, false hope (laughs) um, this summer. And I would ask people, have you been safe? And then I realized safe was an opinionated word Mm -hmm. because it's safe on what they find safe. Not the CDC, not any guideline, just what they deem as safe. Well, then if you're in a high-risk family like mine, you have to start second-guessing these relationships. So then I feel like it's affected a lot of my friendships because of lack of hanging out, lack of being with them, or because of social media. You can see everything that you're, they're doing. To your point, you are like they say they're being safe, but then they're hanging out together, or they're going to parties, or they're going over here, and you're like, but but what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, it isn't And then you find yourself questioning people. And because, I mean, I've done that to my good friends or I had a coworker who I had to go to the office and they walked into my office without a mask on for a while. And later that day, I had to text him and I was like, hey, that made me uncomfortable because... I was wearing a mask. Have you been safe? And by safe, what do you mean? And I'm like, oh, my God, in what world did I ever think I'd be questioning people like this?
1: I know. Like, I'm actually, like, looking at behaviors like, oh, I don't want to be judgmental. I want to be the, I don't want to be that person. And at the same point, I'm like, oh, we can't hang out with you. We can't be with you.
0: (laughs) That's exactly how I'm feeling because, again, multi-generational home, large household. Mm -hmm. I've got so many people to protect, and that's on all of us because I think if there's one thing this virus has taught us, how much we are all connected even when you don't realize it, when it's like, but if you saw this person and this person saw that person, then they went to work, and then they went to class, and then their kid went to their friend's house, and then that kid went to their grandparent's house. I mean, how fast we all connect to one another.
1: Oh. Absolutely. And it reminds me of like when we used to um talk about safe sex practices and the uh, and now it's like but taking it to an nth degree because it's not just you know, but now who have you just been within six feet of? <laughs>
0: I literally compared it to that to one of my coworkers last week. I said, this is actually like having a conversation about, so can you please give me the history of your sexual partners? (laughs) But now it's like with everyone you're around because you're sharing each other's germs. Like I I completely did did the exact same analogy to someone because it feels like that. Although that seems very personal, but right now we're basically asking who have you been around? What have you been doing? What have they been doing? Where are you going? Who are you hanging out with?
1: One of the reasons why you are being safe or like my version of safe, it's like when they do the contact tracing on us, I don't want to have to list a bunch of people out because I'm going to feel really bad. I'm going to feel really bad because I would have a long list or a short list. Like I just, Oh, I think about that. Um, So we really aren't seeing many people because I just can't imagine having to record Everybody Everybody's around. I just don't want to be that person.
0: I totally agree with you. That's how we feel too. It's like if we do contact tracing, I, I, we did have to get my son tested at one point just because he had a fever. And of course they're basically testing anything with a the fever they're making sure of everybody. And I said, I can hand you my one hand and show you here's my contact tracing to these five people. And none of them have had exposure. So I don't think it is. And he was negative. So, well, Dr. Walker, Candy, I greatly appreciate talking with you today. You have always been... I've liked in my life for the past 11 years. I am a lover of education, but more than that, the experience of the people I met along the way. And I would not be where I am today without you. Aww, and so I'm that glad. We are still connected on a personal level. <laughs>
1: You're just awesome, and your awesomeness is going, to, is going to shine this world brightly. So, um, thank you for having me, though, inviting me in and talking with you. I feel so lucky that I got to talk to you for almost an hour. This is amazing. Uh, we need to do this out of your podcast as well please that would be amazing